Kat. I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. We hope you're all still with us after we took last week off and that you enjoyed all the extra spooky Halloween episodes. Yeah. We certainly did. We did. And we also enjoyed our week off. This week, we've got two cold cases from Norway, which remain unsolved. Although cold case is possibly a misnomer because they're technically both closed. Yeah. But uh, as you'll see, there's a lot of uh, intrigue, questions, conspiracy yeah. theories, <laughs> all the things we love. Yes. Uh, one of them has been back in the news lately because it's be it was uh, featured on the new series of Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. Uh, so Jennifer Fairgate was a pseudonym used by a woman who was found dead at the Plaza Hotel in Oslo. And the other case is the Eastyle woman. Um, and she was found dead in the 70s in Norway. And neither... Women have been identified. All attempts to identify them have so far been unsuccessful. And there's more than an air of mystery. <laughs> it's it's like a big, thick cloud. Fog a fog of mystery. Of mystery. A mist of mystery. Yeah. So we're not going to go into like all the details that's in like the Unsolved Mysteries episode because most people have seen it by now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you haven't go listen to it uh, or watch it and then come back and listen because we're just going to touch on the basics yeah and it's a good episode so it's worth yeah giving it a watch right. as well um right so let's get into it also fair warning we're recording this on november 5th i'm super sleep deprived after the election sort of non-results or results so if 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 I say something super wrong, apologies, but my brain is at like half capacity right now. Yeah, I think I'm kind of working on that as well. Yeah. Um, right. So on May 31st, 1995, a woman registered at the Oslo Plaza Hotel under the name of Jennifer Fairgate, uh, accompanied by a man named possibly Lewis, possibly Lois Fairgate. Spelled like Lois. Which I would always have thought was was a, a female name. Yes. Spelled like that, but... I mean... As you'll find, or if you've already seen the Unsolved episode, nothing is as it seems, so... No, there are no rules here. She had a gentleman accompany her. Yes. At check-in. With the same last name. So, three days into her stay... One of the hotel staff members realized that she hadn't put down a credit card for her stay. Uh, and now, this is a fancy hotel, as the name might imply, Plaza. And at the time, it was the most exclusive hotel in Norway. And obviously, these kinds of hotels, even 25 years ago, usually re would require ID and a credit card You know, for incidentals in case you ran up a big mini bar bill or you broke the coffee table or whatever so or i've you, never stayed anywhere like that i stay places where you have to pay a deposit for your key to get in the front door <laughs> <laughs> yeah god 
I was somewhere not that long ago, I think in California, and they were like, oh, we'll just put a a hold on your credit card of uh, like $300 for any incidentals. And I was like, I'm not going to spend fucking $300 on overpriced M&Ms. Like, <laughs> you don't need to hold that much money. Chill out. I'm not going to watch yeah. any porn. I'm just going to sit in my room for like the time I'm asleep and that's it. <laughs> it's California. What else are you going to do? You're going to go out and do stuff. Exactly. I think we I think it was in Anaheim. I think we we're going to Disneyland. So like I'm not I'm not here for your hotel. Yeah. And it's like a Holiday Inn Express. Don't get too excited. <laughs> Even like Premier Inn and Travel Lodge, they don't do that shit. Yeah, exactly. Um, but right, so she didn't put down a credit card for her overpriced, you know, Toblerones and and mini whiskeys. Uh, so they were like, whoopsies. So um, staff at the front desk sent security up to Jennifer's room, which was room uh, 2805. Um, but when the security... Uh, guy knocked on the door he heard a gunshot from inside the room he then returned to the ground floor and contacted the police as one does um, and when the room was secured and officers were able to enter Jennifer was found with a single gunshot wound to her forehead was that your end? yeah is there a boat outside? <laughs> yeah there's a lot of um uh, or there seems to be some differing accounts as to whether it was security that entered the room or if they waited for police. police. But either way, the initial security guy returned to the ground floor, got more security guys, and they and the police at some point entered the room, whether yeah. together or yeah. at different separately, while they were waiting for police. Yeah. It's not 100% clear, like the TV show says one thing and then some sources say another. So. Mm -hmm. At the very least, there was a gap of time before or between hearing the gunshot and someone entering the room. Yeah, that is the important yeah. thing, really. Um, so uh, the police eventually ruled Jennifer's death a suicide. But uh, as we've mentioned, there are still many, many questions, both about her death and her life. So when a person dies, one of the first things authorities have to do is contact the next of kin. But in the case of Jennifer Fairgate, it wasn't quite that easy. Jennifer had given her address as being in the small town of Verlaine in Belgium. But the street number she gave didn't actually exist. She'd also given a phone number that didn't exist. But it was like in keeping and consistent with the area code for the town that particular town and its surrounding environs so was like kind of right but kind of didn't not. actually yeah it was kind of in keeping but didn't actually exist mm -hmm. so usually police would contact interpol or today europol would actually be the first point of contact um but that wasn't uh formed until 1998 so they'll contact either europol or interpol an officer's local to her home address or next of kin would you know track down the family inform them of the death help them to make arrangements to either go and collect the body or have the body repatriated and collect it 
know, once it got into the country. Mm-hmm. But officers in Belgium were unable to find Jennifer's family. Or even any record of her living in the town. Nobody in the area recognised her at all. And the task of locating Jennifer's family was made much harder due to the fact there was no passport or any form of ID was found amongst her possessions in the hotel room. There was also no trace of the man, Lois, Lewis Fairgate, who was named on Jennifer's check-in form. And from what we can find, nobody's ever been able to identify or find him either. He was seen at check-in and that was it. Uh, I was going to ask, so he was definitely there at check-in, but then yeah, nothing from what, afterwards. As I understand it, yeah. He was there at check-in, he was named on the check-in sheet form thing, but he was not seen or heard from after that. And I couldn't find any record of it being like a, you know, like a composite drawing mm-hmm. or artist impression or anything of him, so would suggest to me that the staff didn't even get a good look at him. Yeah. So he's she just... filled in the forms. He was maybe just kind of hanging around. Yeah. Um, sort of in the background, nobody got a good look at him. Yeah. So that leaves him a big question mark as well. Great. <laughs> um, so to this day, authorities still have not been able to identify Jennifer. But uh, we will come back to her in a little bit because she was not the first woman to be found uh, dead in mysterious circumstances in Norway, who authorities have not been able to identify. On November 29th, 1970, the body of a woman was found in the Istalan area, which translates as Ice Valley, um, and it's just outside of Norway's second city, Bergen. So... Uh, The woman's body was discovered off the hiking trails by a woman who had noticed a a strong smell of burning and decided to investigate. Um, uh, So the body was laid on her back with her fists up in a sort of boxer-like pose, and uh, her body was severely burned beyond recognition. So apparently, I saw in a video on YouTube about this case, it's actually really common for the hands to be open like a boxer pose in bodies that have been burnt. Mm-hmm. I don't know why or how, but apparently that I assume it's to do with like the reactions to do with like heat and the way the body burns. Yeah. Would move, kind of move the joints up or out in some way. It's not necessarily like indicative of the fact that she was killed while trying to defend herself. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, So the family who discovered the body quickly returned to the nearest town and contacted the police who began investigating. Uh, And near uh, her body, the police also found a liquor bottle, two two water bottles, a plastic passport container, rubber boots, a jumper, a scarf, nylon stockings, an umbrella, a purse, a matchbox, a watch, two earrings, and a ring. And uh, a fur hat was also found nearby, which had traces of petrol or gasoline on it. So that's an interesting list. It's a lot of stuff to be out out on the trails with. Yeah, and it's all found 
relatively intact. Uh-huh. Uh, three days after the woman's body was found in the East Island area, police found two suitcases at a train station in Bergen, which belonged to the woman. So she's now known as the East Isle woman. Uh, inside the suitcases, police found currency from Norway, Germany, the UK, Switzerland and Belgium. Remember, this is pre-single currency, pre-euro. Yeah, pre-euro. <laughs> yeah, to carry around all different coins. Police found, yeah. So, currency from Norway, which would have been Norwegian krona, Germany, the Deutschmark, the UK, pound sterling, Switzerland, which is Swiss francs, and Belgium, which I think was Belgian francs. Only this, they found wigs, non-prescription glasses, a notebook, which when it was eventually decoded by police, detailed her movements around uh, Europe. Decoded, so as in it was written in some sort of code? Sort of. I think I didn't look too deeply into it because it's been decoded and they know you'll find out where she'd been. Mm-hmm. Um, it. Some say it's a code, some say it's just kind of like her own shorthand. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like, you know, like the initials of a hotel or like a city, like city initials or city code and different dates and things like that. So it could have been purposely coded or it could have just been a own like shorthand. Like, I don't know about you, but when I make notes, nobody knows what I'm talking about because it makes sense to me. No, exactly. So, so in either case, something that wasn't immediately apparent to whoever yeah, was reading it. Wasn't it wasn't like... Yeah, it wasn't like longhand, like, such and such a day. Today, I crossed the border into Switzerland. Yeah. Nobody really knows to what extent it was coded or just shorthand. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, So there was a fingerprint found on the glasses lens, which matched the fingerprint of the East-style woman, which is how they conclusively linked the body to the suitcases. Uh, Police, like I say, when they decoded this notebook or figured it out, they managed to identify hotels she'd stayed in whilst in Norway, all of which she'd filled out the check-in forms in either French or German. Hmm. Um, She used different addresses, different aliases, different dates of birth, but she always identified herself as being Belgian. So unlike Jennifer Fairgate, who had no forms of identification, the East Star woman had eight passports, eight aliases. On one hand, you've got a drought. On the other hand, you've got a smorgasbord. Yeah. Hey, it's the right region of Europe yeah, right? for a smorgasbord. Yes, perfect. That's so many. I can barely remember where I keep my one passport. Keep it in your knicker drawer. No. Put it in a little case and keep it in your knicker drawer. What, you don't wash your knickers? No, I do, but I have deep drawers. You get lost yeah, no in there. no one will find it. No one will find it. It won't get stolen. But see, I'm more likely to put it there and not remember that I put it there so then frantically tear apart the house trying to find it the last place it was. So, so you'll have to write yourself a little post-it that says, Cat knows where my passport <laughs> is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And I will tell you, it's in your underwear Okay, that's fair enough. 
Why are you worrying about it? We can't leave the country. I mean, that's true. I, I don't want to and leave the country. And do you want to leave? No, I'm good here. <laughs> I'm fucking good. <laughs> oh, God. Um, okay. Right. So, tons of passports, all aliases. Now, just like Jennifer Fairgate, the Istal woman's death was eventually ruled a suicide. And in February 1971, the investigation into her death was closed and she was given a Catholic burial in Bergen. Um, now, investigators theorized that she was Catholic uh, because she had used saints' names for her aliases, which is quite an interesting uh, little tidbit there. Yeah. Right, so she was given a Catholic funeral. She used saints' names for her aliases. She was buried in a zinc coffin which is supposed to be uh one of the most hard-wearing materials for a coffin and they chose this uh in the hopes that eventually she would be identified and then her remains could be moved and reinterred closer to her family and loved ones um i think that's really like really nice and really considerate mm -hmm. because most most places it would be just handed over to local authorities and they'd give her a pauper's funeral mm -hmm. because nobody claimed the body, which is the cheapest and nastiest coffin they can find yeah. that will rot away in months. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, it's, you're talking about a pine box. Like, you're not... Yeah. Yeah. So when it says zinc coffin, that's zinc lined. It's it's still wooden. Yeah. But there's a zinc lining yeah. to protect the body. An autopsy revealed that she had ingested at least 50, that's five zero, sleeping pills before her death and that there was smoke in her lungs, uh, which indicated that her body had been set on fire before she died. Uh, so she had ingested the 50 sleeping pills, but the sleeping pills hadn't been digested by the time she died. And whilst it's... Almost unthinkable to most of us, self-immolation, which is the act of ending one's life by setting oneself on fire, isn't unheard of. It is, however, recognised as one of the most painful ways to die. Quite a rare way to end your own life. And therefore, there are many questions and theories about how the Estal woman ended her own life. Yeah. Because if you've taken 50 sleeping pills... You're not waking up from that. No. Unless you have like that kind of metabolism that digests and metabolizes sleeping pills so quick they have no effect. Like I know someone, or I used to work with someone who um, who was like that. Like she woke up in the middle of having back surgery because oh. her body had like uh, metabolized the anesthetics. So is that the right word? metabolized like her body had absorbed uh -huh. the anesthetics so quick it wore off in half the time or something and like painkillers and stuff didn't work for her because her body just like sucked it all up. them so quickly oh, god yeah like it seems extreme like it seems like you could do one of these two things and be pretty sure that that was that you don't need to double down that is literally like belt and braces yeah exactly um, um so yeah both the both jennifer fairgate and the east star woman's deaths were recorded as suicide but there's so many questions and well 
theories, <laughs> just things that don't make sense um, about the deaths that most people think that foul play is involved. And one of the most popular theories, which is the one we're going to focus on, is espionage. <laughs> Everybody loves a spy. Yes. I think this is our first spy case. I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. Um, I mean, eight passports, a bunch of different uh, currencies. That's a spy. Yeah. Come on. They both spoke multiple languages. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. It it rings of espionage, if you will. Yeah, there is, a, there is a hint, at least. Yes. So, um, there are a number of similarities between the two women and the way that they died. Uh, when investigators examined clothing belonging to each of the women, they found that all of the labels had been removed from each item of clothing. According to Norwegian intelligence expert Ola Kaldager, uh, who contributes to the Unsolved Mysteries episode um, about Jennifer, this removing the labels is actually a common practice within secret services because it makes it more difficult for authorities to narrow down the country that a person comes from. Because... If you think about it, like the la- the language used on the labels would usually narrow down the country or a just sort of general group of countries where the person could have come from. Um, and it would also give investigators a better idea of what kind of person they were, like what kind of income they had depending on where they shopped, if the clothes were just, you know, from high street shops or from expensive boutiques or um, you know, fancy designer clothes. I don't know, d- designer spy stores, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, if you bought your clothes at like a nice place, then maybe the cops could show up and be like, "Hey, do you remember this person who bought your really expensive shirt at some point?" I had would never have thought of that. I mean, obviously, we're not law enforcement or secret service or maybe we are but you know it's so secretive we might not even know yeah it's just slipped my mind (laughs) but yeah i would never have thought of like if it's really expensive um clothing that's there's not a lot in circulation yeah there may be like like if there were individual designer pieces you could be like okay yeah yeah we can go with them but for like your general everyday clothes i would never have thought but like they would go to like boutique or like really high-end designer shops and be like okay did this person (laughs) shop here because but when you think about it some designers there's like one shop yeah in a like in a whole country yeah or like um certain like higher-end brands do like limited runs of articles of clothing per like season or whatever so you know there may have only been 500 of those jackets sold in the entire world in spring 19 you know 68 yeah. or something who knows but it's clever yeah and then obviously your your sort of high street cheap clothes all right there's a primark in pretty much every 
square mile of the world now, but <laughs> others, you know, your new look, yeah, uh, dotty peas, things like that, just your average high street clothing shops, they don't have them in every country. No, exactly. But also, can I just suggest a possibility as well? I remove the tags from all of my clothing because I can't stand the sort of itching potential. So maybe they were just really itchy. Well, but as you'll see, not quite. There's, an, there's some more there's similar more activity that, that's not, you can't blame it on being itchy. They're itchy spies. Yeah. So I said the other reason that a spy would want to make it more difficult for them to be identified in the event of their death is that the intelligence agency they work for likely wouldn't want anyone to find out what they were up to. All countries are spying on each other. <laughs> Have been for decades, centuries. <laughs> yeah. You know, all countries have agents. They have, Everywhere has sleeper agents. Everywhere has spies. Everywhere. All countries are doing it. However, <laughs> there's a big risk to international relations if they all find out who's spying on who. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say and so. And where and when and why. <laughs> so... In the Eastyle woman's case, there were prescription medications found found amongst her belongings and the labels had been removed from the medication. So in her case, one of them was like a, an eczema cream. Mm. So, you know, your eczema never gets that itchy that you've got to take the label off the tube of The cream. tube, it's just... <laughs> yeah. But she was an itchy spy then. So, so yeah, obviously, if they'd had the prescription stickers on it, they would have been able to find out what, well, firstly, you'd have the language mm -hmm. to try and narrow it down, likely the country it was made in, and then, obviously, your prescription label would say where, when, and who mm -hmm. prescribed it and who it was for. So, the causes or methods of death have been questioned a lot in both cases, now, as we said, the Istal woman's death is questioned because self-immolation is, if not a strange way, certainly an extreme way to end your own life. Yeah. Um, and now, in the case of Jennifer Fairgate, the single gunshot wound to the head was definitely her cause of death. But whether or not she pulled the trigger is the subject of much discussion. Now, although blood spatter pattern analysis is now generally considered a junk science, or at least we don't put as much stock into it now that we may have done in the past. Um, I mean, in some cases, it is still useful yeah. as a guidance. Yeah. But as a science, it's not. Yeah. Uh, like, the thing is, there are different types of blood you know cast, cast like, off cast. arterial spray like that's that's a given but whether or not you know this one droplet has a tail going in that direction means that the killer came from you know sweden that's not so legit anymore um so that aside if a person shoots themselves in the forehead it's almost certain that they will have some form of uh, blood spatter 
and gunshot residue on their hands. But Jennifer's hands were clean and the gun was found resting on her chest with her thumb still on the trigger. Thumb, not her finger. Which is a strange way. And I'm sure if you're like us, you're now holding your hand in front of your head. That is a strange way to pull a gun. So, according to contributors on the Unsolved Mysteries episode, it's unusual for her to have been able to fire the gun with her thumb. And gun experts claim that the powerful kickback from the gun and the unusual grip would make it almost impossible for her to have kept hold of the gun as she sort of fell back onto the bed when she died. I could see that. Like, that makes sense. Because it is, it's a weird... It's a weird, I mean, we're, obviously you can't see it, we're holding (laughs) our hands quite away, actually quite far away from our heads, whereas it's a small gun, but apparently had like a really powerful kickback. Yeah. We're not, we don't know anything about guns, so. (laughs) But like, just, uh, so if you think about, if you pick something up, like, and point it away from you, you really use like your thumb and like the, the meat of the base of your thumb to like secure things in your grip Mm -hmm. but if if that's if what you're using is your fingers like yeah and i think easily like kickback would shoot that out of your hand no problem seems seems fishy um so according to an article on screen rant which details points of jennifer's death that weren't included in the netflix episode and we'll put you know, links to everything in the show notes and on our website as per usual. Um, There were two shots fired in her hotel room. So you had the fatal headshot and then another shot into one of the pillows. Uh, Now, this information points to there having been another person in Jennifer's room. The most popular theories posit that Jennifer had actually been dead for some time when the security guard knocked on the door and that the shot had been uh, to warn off whoever was at the door and then give the assassin time to get away, knowing that whoever was at the door would leave and go to get help. And uh, like we said before, the security guard who heard the gunshot said that there's a period of about 15 minutes between him leaving the corridor following the gunshot and then security returning to the room, which would have been plenty of time for a a trained professional assassin to escape. Yeah, so that 15 minutes is, like, r- really important. Yeah. That's a long time, too. Like, yeah, we don't think about that, but in, in a situation like this, like, if you're... If you're just it's, a guy walking out of a hotel room, 15 minutes is plenty of time. Even to go down the back not, stairs or go out the not lobby. Not even that. I mean, you could even be staying in the same hotel. Yeah, you could just walk down the hallway. Like, who knows? So, yeah. And a big hotel like that, like you say, there's plenty of places you could go out a back stairway. You could go, you could either, you could hide in another room. Mm-hmm. There'll be like a supply closet somewhere. There's also Go hit up the ice machine. Like Yeah. So one of the prevailing questions surrounding Jennifer's stay at the Plaza Hotel was how she was able to check in to the most expensive, exclusive, fancy-ass <laughs> hotel in the entire country with no ID and no credit card. 
So it's possible that this would have been like just a simple oversight by a hotel employee. However, given the suspicious nature of the rest of her stay at the plaza, it is possible that there was something else going on which allowed her to get a room at the plaza with no ID and no credit card information. It's also possible that if she was a spy, security, um, like secret service operatives could have hacked in to their system. This is the early days of the internet. That is possible that they could have hacked in, removed like all those details from the system. Yeah. And it could even be not necessarily like hacking as we think of it, you know, through, you know, internet pipes and sitting at you know somewhere across the world like they could have sent someone into the hotel to wipe the their systems on location they 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 could have had someone working there exactly like Like they just in a normal like front of house position mm -hmm. that could have been who checked them in to make sure that like there wasn't any real record so yeah so many possibilities guys yeah so the Istal woman uh, was also not without some strange goings on during her hotel stays, um, as well as Bergen. The woman had stayed in Oslo, Trondheim, and and Stra- Stava- Stavanger. Stavang- Stavanger. Um, each of them, uh, she used a different alias. But she had requested to change rooms multiple times throughout her stay. So staff at the hotels remember her because of all this room switching. And all describe her as having been like very guarded and spending a lot of time in her room. So while she may have been worried about being followed and uh, was trying to hide by swapping rooms, she was also making herself more identified viable to staff and potentially to other guests as well at the various hotels by switching around all over the place that that was one thing that i found strange like it it reeks of paranoia Mm -hmm. if it's one thing to like check out and go stay in a different hotel yeah but to be swapping rooms every few days in the hotel you're staying in it just doesn't seem that's making you more memorable yeah it doesn't seem smart like like you said like i'd go to a different if, hotel if, if yeah, i was if someone's worried tr- if someone's tracked you to that hotel they're gonna find you no matter what room you're yeah. in so in 1970 and 1995 there were media campaigns to try and identify um both the Istal woman and jennifer uh both in norway and in belgium where it was thought that both of them were from But these campaigns were unsuccessful and nobody ever came forward to identify either woman. Both women were buried in unnamed graves. Uh, The Istal woman had a grave marker acknowledging that her identity is unknown, but Jennifer's grave is unmarked. Uh, I find that so sad. It is. Even though they don't know their identity, that there's no marker. Yeah. No, I agree. And like... Uh, I don't know. Would it not be better to put her alias on it? Like, like possibly. Wo- woman known yeah. as Jennifer Farragate or something? Yeah. I don't know. It's, 
That's rough. Because if if the the spy narrative is true, they're never going to be repatriated. Yeah, exactly. So, and they're never going to be widely identified, or at least it's going to be like you know, fifty years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like when their gen, most of their generation has died, mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, it's going to be a long time. So the families deserve to have somewhere if that is the case. Yeah. No, absolutely. So, despite both of their deaths being ruled suicides and closed by the police, there have still been subsequent attempts to identify them. And most recently, uh, those have taken the form of using stable isotope analysis of their teeth. So uh, the Istal woman's jawbone was never buried and had been retained along with um, organ samples for future examination. And Jennifer's body was exhumed uh, so that samples could be taken. The Istal woman's jaw was retained for a specific reason it wasn't just like oh we just won't bury this part i'm just gonna keep this bit yeah it was because she had some very interesting dental work done so she had like a number of weird fillings and like half crowns and there are pictures out there in loads of articles about her with the teeth if you so want to look at them i know taylor doesn't because she's got the dentist tomorrow Uh, i'll be going to get weird fillings tomorrow (laughs) But yeah, to look at, they are very, very strange the way the, some of these are done. These crowns, like, I don't know how to describe them. That's how weird they are. <laughs> like, there's standard, like, there's like normal fillings, but then there's like almost half fillings on, like, you know, like the front teeth, mm-hmm. which are very difficult to fill. Mm-hmm. Usually you just have to have them straight up removed. There's like fillings in half of them on the back, like the back side of the teeth. Mm. It's, it's strange. I'll have to take a look. I don't like teeth. Yeah. I think they're creepy, but that's interesting. Because this dental work was so strange, it makes it quite easy to be identified. And it was identified as being of a style of dentistry typically found in Southern and Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Oh. So during her stays at the various hotels, the Estal woman was observed speaking in German, French, Flemish and English along with listing her in her checking papers, her nationality as Belgian. This led investigators to believe that she was from this area of Europe where sort of the region where French, uh, the French, Belgian, Luxembourgish and German borders all meet, mm-hmm. which is quite a small mm-hmm. area. But the examination of the teeth then massively increased this area. <laughs> so they went from quite this this quite small region in Western Europe to half of Europe, Russia, and the whole of Central Asia. Crap. (laughs) But there is another thing that we have to consider in the case of the Istal woman, and that is the timing. So she died in 1970, which is pretty much smack dab in the middle of the Cold War. Uh, And just three years later, many Soviet and Israeli spies were found to be living in Norway. Uh, Now, not only this, but the country is generally considered to be Central Asia now. So Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan were all a part of the Soviet Union. 
um, as were many Eastern European countries like Ukraine, Belarus, and the Baltic states. So while identifying her dental work as being typical of that in Eastern Europe or Central Asia seems like a like massive area, um, at the time of her death, most of that area was technically just one country. So this is not to say that she was a Soviet citizen, but uh, she may have spent a large amount of her adult life there. I found that really strange because not that she spent a lot of time in the Soviet Union, but when I was reading up on this case and like, oh, well, it could have been Central Europe or Eastern Europe or Central Asia and there's all these countries. And I was thinking, I am, I can't be the only one who's made the connection that that was all one country yeah. at the time. Yeah. I'm not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like surely, well, I am. But, surely we haven't just know. uncovered the key to this case. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I mean. Like, I'm not saying, like, obviously we're not thick, but we can't be yeah. the first ones to be like, hey, in 1970, all these countries were one. Hey, they were all part of the USSR. Who, who remembers the Soviet Union here? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So we probably haven't solved anything. We're probably not smarter than the Norwegian intelligence services. But I just find it strange that nobody... Points that out. To, yeah, nobody seems to point this out. And I'm like, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, and also, like, interestingly... So it could it, so it could mean that she was a Soviet citizen and that she spent time there as an adult or it could mean that she was spying on the Soviets and spent time there as an adult. Yeah. Like there's or she could even have been like in so she could even have been like in like the gulag system or something she could have been a prisoner Mm -hmm. of war and ended up stuck there depending on who you know where she was from originally Mm -hmm. there's all kind of questions but that to me suggests that she spent a lot of time a lot of her adult life somewhere in the soviet union whether she was a soviet citizen which i don't think she was think she was definitely spying yeah. on them yeah. though so um her time in norway also corresponds with the testing of the penguin missile uh which you know despite its sort of stupid and cuddly name uh <laughs> was actually a very important weapons test for not just norway um but nato as well so it was tested in the early 1970s and then it was adopted towards the end of the 1970s Mm. by the Norwegian military and later on by uh, other countries. However, just to contradict everything Taylor has just told you, (laughs) the isotope analysis tells us something else about the Estelle woman. So isotope analysis has many uses. It examines the isotope signature of a place and time. And it measures different types of radiation and certain elements in the atmosphere and in particular in water supplies. Mm. So it's kind of like carbon dating, but as I understand it, more, whereas carbon dating obviously focuses on carbon content, um, isotope focuses on all kinds of different particles present in the atmosphere and water. Mm. 
So these isotope signatures become embedded in our teeth when we're very small children. So, and it's kind of based on the water you drink as much as it is in the atmosphere as well. So they also become embedded in your hair. So if you've got quite long hair, they could do isotope analysis and find out where you've been living for the past few years. And also um, from your teeth, they could find out where you grew Mm -hmm. up. So when it comes to trying to identify a Jando or a Jondo, the isotope analysis focuses on the carbon isotopes found in the enamel of a person's teeth. The carbon isotope will correspond to a time and place where the person was born or lived when they were very small. So, and let me say, hair gives you a more recent um, uh, analysis Mm -hmm. of where they've lived. I don't think they ever did hair analysis on the Estelle woman, but the isotope signature of her teeth matched an area of Germany near the French border in 1930. So that means that she was either born in that region in 1930 or moved there as a very small child. So finally, um, investigators were able to give the East Isle woman a fairly accurate age and they reckoned that she was about 40 years old when she died. Although there is a caveat on her on that, that they say that's plus or minus four years. Some places they can like narrow it down a lot more and others... It's a bit more, they kind of have a bit more leeway, but mm-hmm. yeah. So they reckon she was born around 1930, plus or minus four years, and so she would have been about 40, yeah. plus or minus four years. So, I mean, that's a pretty reasonable margin of error when you're you're looking at something so like hard to pin down. Isotopic analysis has also recently been carried out on uh, Jennifer, And it turned out that she was born in 1971 in Eastern Germany, uh, which uh, at that time would have been the country of East Germany. Um, And it also meant that she would have been uh, around 24 years old when she died. What's interesting with the analysis they did on Jennifer is that seems to be more specific. Yeah, it does. And that is because... During the Cold War, there was so much testing of nuclear weapons and various radioactive weapons that they can actually narrow it down a lot more accurately based on these various weapon above-ground weapons mm-hmm. tests, in especially throughout Eastern Europe. So they can actually give a much more um, accurate time frame year yeah. than they could... For the East Star woman, because 1930, there wasn't as much activity of that kind. That's if I understand it right, which is yeah. perfectly reasonable, but I do not. Because I may have read the same sentence about various things on isotopes like 10 times. And I'm like, well, I'm still not entirely sure. I mean, they do talk about it in sort of layman's terms in the Unsolved Mysteries episodes yeah. and or episode. And like, yeah, from what I understood of it. Like the the I don't know if it's radiation or gamma particles or some sort of debris m- m- uh, 
microscopic debris from these nuclear tests get into the atmosphere, which then gets embedded in teeth and enamel and bones and hair and that kind of stuff in, in the environment. Yeah. So, like, yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. If you are a, an isotope analyst, please tell us uh, how it really works. But but do it in a, like, explain it like I'm five kind of way, because otherwise yeah. we won't get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be nice. Don't be Two mean. syllable words only, please. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, so Norwegian journalist Lars Wegner, who is uh, the main contributor to the Unsolved Mysteries episode on Jennifer, seems to be a big driving force behind uh, uncovering Jennifer's true identity. Um, uh, and he first learned of her case a year after she died in 1996 when he was doing a story on unidentified people in Norway. And uh, he also seems to have been instrumental in pushing for her uh, body to be exhumed and to have isotope testing uh, carried out. So once he got the results uh, saying that she was born in 1971 in Eastern Germany, he contacted the Bildzeitung, uh, which according to the show is the biggest newspaper in Europe and worked with them to run a series of articles on Jennifer and publicize her case in the hopes that someone in Germany would recognize her and come forward. But so far, there have been no useful leads. Do you know what Bild Zeitung translates as? Not a clue. Picture newspaper. Oh, well. Or image newspaper, I think. Because I knew, like, Zeitung means newspaper. I also know we do have some listeners in Germany, so they can laugh at us. Yes, um, please. Tell us what we've gotten wrong. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. But yeah, I didn't know what build meant. And then I put it into Google Translate and it said picture or image. So yeah. Build Zeitung. Picture newspaper. Oh, there you go. There's your vocabulary lesson for the day, everyone. Now you might be thinking that if scientists have been able to do isotopic analysis, why haven't they just done full DNA profiling? and begun searching for Jennifer and Istal women's identities using forensic genealogy in the same way that ultimately caught uh, the Golden State Killer, jo Joseph James D'Angelo. Hell! <laughs> Profiles have been developed for both of the women, and they have been sent out uh, with an Interpol black notice. So this means that the authorities are just searching for information regarding unidentified bodies, so there's different colour, like, notices to denote different levels of information required. Mm -hmm. So black notice means that they're just searching for information regarding an unidentified body. I think this means that Interpol is basically requesting that individual countries check these profiles against their national DNA databases and report back if there's a match. And as far as we can find, there haven't been any matches so far. Mm. So naturally, you might think... The next step would be forensic genealogy. However, there is a slight snag in that process. Oh boy. Because why not? Of course. Um, so although the DNA profiles have been distributed by Interpol, Norwegian law enforcement are not giving permission for them to be run through the main DNA sites like Ancestry.com or GEDmatch. 
I have a theory about this, although I'm going to hold off because otherwise I'll go on a wild tangent, but I do have what I think is a half-baked intelligent okay. idea. Okay. I came up with it last <laughs> night. I was kind of drinking a lot last night. Hmm. <laughs> you're, you're lending but, less credence to your theory already. I know. You shouldn't have said that. But... <laughs> So unless the Norwegian law enforcement and national security agencies decide to release both the Istal woman and Jennifer's DNA for comparison on a large international DNA sites uh, like Ancestry and GEDmatch, it seems pretty unlikely that we will ever know their true identities. Uh, although there is still a chance that someone will recognize Jennifer from the composite images and artist impressions that have been created over the years. The Estal woman would have turned 90 this year or thereabouts. And so time is definitely running out for someone to come forward and identify her. One other interesting clue in the story of the Estal woman's death is that in 2005, an anonymous Bergen resident came forward to say that in 1970, he had briefly met a woman who resembled the composite sketches of the Istar woman. While she was hiking in the mountains near the city, five days before her death, and he described her as resigned and looking as though she was about to say something to him, but then changed her mind and carried on walking. He said that she wasn't dressed for hiking and that she was followed by two men who looked, quote, southern. <laughs> I don't know what southern means in this case. Like, if it means, like, southern European. Yeah. Anyway, this man reported this to the police in 1970 following the discovery of this style woman's body. But he was told to forget about it and that you know, just go about your life. It doesn't matter. Mm. So this was never filed in the police investigation. There was never an official report. Make of that what you will. I'll make it suspicious. Yeah. And that comes to the end of our clues, really. Uh, someone knows something here. And I think it's... Yeah. It's the either the police or the governments involved. I think I'll tell you my theory yeah. now. So I think somebody higher up does know, and I think they were both spies. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why they won't release that information. So it's, let's say the like former intelligence experts or operatives who are now like experts, like the guy who's in the Unsolved Mysteries episode. They're all coming to the same conclusion that especially like Jennifer definitely they think was like a textbook mm -hmm. spy. Mm -hmm. But it's that woman. That is one of the most common theories as well. I think if police have come to that or law enforcement have come to that conclusion, I think that's why they won't release the DNA because of the international shitstorm that it'll yeah. cause. And because if these women, if these two women were um, secret service operatives in some capacity or another, whatever they were doing, they've died, they've been buried in Norway, their families will have been notified. Mm -hmm. 
here's a lot of money. Your daughter died a hero. Keep your mouth mm-hmm. shut. That's what will have happened. And I think that's why they won't release the DNA because then they might identify mm-hmm. them. And they don't want that because of the political nature. Because And it depends if they might have identified who killed them. Yeah, that's the thing. Because I don't buy that either of them were suicide, so it's not necessarily just identifying them. It's if that then has a link to who could have killed exactly. them. That I... Let's say this style woman would have been around 90 this year. This month, I think next week, two weeks time, will be the 50th anniversary of a body being mm-hmm. found. There's not many people around anymore who are going to be able to identify her. So say she was 40, yeah, she'll have known or maybe associated with people who may maybe were like in their early 20s, mm-hmm. depending who she knew. They'd still be like in their 70s yeah, now. Exactly. So. There's not a lot of people left to identify her, but there is still a chance that someone could identify Jennifer. Jennifer. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's a like forensic genealogy is a long, slow process. It's yeah. not super easy, like comparing things in like a like DNA database. It's a really long, like all-consuming process that takes year can take yeah. years, but. I don't think they want it to be found. I I agree with that. Like I everything seems to point to that these two women did not take their own lives. Um which then leads to the question like were they murdered by like someone from an opposing country or organization were they taken out by their own or like there's so many different possibilities yeah like there's did like, they get burned the, or something that that's the thing because i mean they both according to the isotope analysis are both born or spent their very early years in different germany. parts of germany yeah. so from that we'll accept that neither of them were norwegian yeah. So if they were German spies who were took out by the Norwegian intelligence, mm-hmm. that's no. not good. If they were taken out by, say, because there was um, the KGB and the Mossad both had agents in Norway during this missile mm-hmm. testing. So if they were taken out by the Soviets or the Israelis, that's another political shit oh, yeah. storm. Holy shit, yeah. Especially at, a t- especially at a time like now, we think of obviously Russia as the... Um, the predecessor to the Soviet Union, all the other countries got their independence. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of tension with Russia. Oh, God, yeah. And there's a lot of so, tension with like the idea of Russian interference with other countries. And so that yeah. this would not be a good time to start saying, oh, by the way, the Russians killed a, a German spy or, or, you know, Belgian spy or something in, you know, yeah. 1995. Um, mm. and equally especially in the case of the Estal woman she clearly spent some time some part of the Soviet yeah. Union that maybe she had defected mm-hmm. it happened um, and also in the case of, of Jennifer Fairgate 
19, so 1995, it's four years after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, but it's only seven years after the reunification of Germany. Yeah. So she also grew up in Eastern Germany, which was aligned with the Soviets. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it doesn't go well either yeah. way. Like no matter what, you've got a situation where like there's a lot of tension between a lot of different players and it's all under this layer of subterfuge and like uh, clear like hallmarked signs to some sort of undercover intelligence operations happening but to sort of come out and say that would not be smart yeah i mean if you think about like cia files that get declassified after 50 60 70 years like a lot of those operations go on for decades like so something that was being worked on in 1995 there could still be remnants of that sort of intelligence gathering now and it could put other operatives at risk yeah and so if we work on that theory so say so obviously the star woman was killed in the middle of the cold war Technically, that ended with the fall of the Soviet Union in 91. Yes. Technically. Everything didn't stop there. No, of course not. Like, it's... So, depending how long it took for everything to wind down and for these two opposing countries and allies to start trusting each other again. I mean, there was war in Europe until, like, 15, 12, 15 years ago in, like, Eastern Europe in the Balkans up till now so it's like okay so we can declassify it after 50 years is that after 50 years from when she was found which would be the end of this mm-hmm. month is it 50 years from the end of the soviet uh the end of the mm-hmm. cold war which would be a while to go um 2041 yeah. we don't want to think about nope. that because it makes us quite old or is it 50 years from when all operations Stop. related to the Cold War finally yeah. stopped. No, there's... Which could be a t- hundred years from now. We don't know what's still never. going on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which is why I, I doubt... I mean, the Istal woman, we might one day find out her identity. I don't think we'll find out Jennifer's in, in our yeah, lifetime. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I don't know. It's uh, It reeks of spies to me, certainly. And... And yeah, like we said, everything that comes with that is so secretive and obfuscated by different countries and different agencies and different policies that it's just like, there's you, you're not going to get answers here. But we can add some more questions <laughs> if you'd like. No answers. <laughs> Here's some fucking questions. In Jennifer's room. There was a newspaper with 2816 mm-hmm. written on it. The occupant of room 2816 was a man who's only been identified as Mr. X, who is from Belgium. And he spoke to Lars Wenger, the journalist, about the case. And he claims that he was informed of Jennifer's death upon checking out on Saturday june 3rd so if he was informed when he was checking out 
that means that it happened the day before. Mm -hmm. Jennifer died on the 3rd. She died that afternoon. So he says that he was told about it whilst checking out. He, from what I understand, kind of explains it as the, the hotel staff were gossiping about the dead guest, but he checked out, supposedly, before it happened. Mm. So how did he know? How was he told about it before it yeah, happened? Yeah, and if, if the theory holds true that she was dead for a time before her body was discovered, then yeah. that could fit nicely with that as well. Yeah. And, like, also, what a way to do it as well. Like, if you check out first... Oh, yeah. And then some, you know, sneak in the back and then, you know, make sure that everything's all settled. Um, another interesting thing that I found was that uh, just three weeks after Jennifer's death, the system for reporting missing persons in Belgium was changed. Yeah. And so Lars Wenger uh, theorizes that she could have been reported missing if say if say she wasn't a spy she was just a normal mm -hmm. person she could have been reported missing but the report was lost in the system but that doesn't explain the lack of id personal effects Alias. or why nobody in belgium yeah. has has come forward and identified yeah. also her. the fake address the all that stuff yeah. as well but if so, say she was an undercover operative but her next of kin didn't know that, then, like, they could have reported her missing under her real name. And then... Yeah, it's, and it's it's very convenient that the system changed and it could yeah. be lost in the yeah, system. exactly. Um, it's interesting. That's all interesting. Uh, I'm going to have to cut out about 17 instances of us just saying it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that's the problem is it, it's interesting, but there's nothing definitive that yeah, you can say. Exactly. But uh, it just it's like it's like a brain worm. It's, it is. It's it just there. it's like, oh, but what if what about this? Or what about that? Or, oh, my God. Yeah. What if? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I. So one of my sort of really unanswered questions in it is who the fuck was Lewis Fairgate and what happened yeah. to him? Or like, I don't know, like could she have checked in with him under duress? Like, could that be who killed that her? Is... Why did I never think of that before? That is like quite obvious when you think <laughs> about it. Well, not obvious, but that's like a like a really good theory oh, i do my best um or like yeah like what it was see another operative they were working together and then he split you know to get out of the situation or like or from another agency or like i don't know there's or they could have been from two different countries like uh intelligence agencies and their paths crossed or, you know, they ended up working the same sort of 
case or information yeah. or whatever. Like, I don't know. My entire knowledge of like intelligence operations comes from the uh, TV show Covert Affairs, basically, and Homeland. So, <laughs> like, uh, I have not watched either of those. Covert things. Affairs is great. It's a little bit ridiculous, but uh, I love it. Homeland is a lot, <laughs> and I've. Still haven't finished it, but, you know, prestige TV and all that. And the Istal woman, I was murdered. It can't be suicide. Uh, I don't. She, she didn't take 50 just... sleeping pills and then set herself on fire. Yeah. And like one theory was like, oh, she had a big kind of hairspray. And it fell into a campfire and she caught fire and fell over. Like, I don't think that happened. I don't, I mean, that seems like a very specific theory that, I, I, that just doesn't seem right. Especially because, like, that would create quite a, quite a reaction. But all of the stuff that was near her wasn't really that damaged by the fire, was it? No, so everything was kind of near her, and I think there was petrol on the fur hat, yeah. but other than that, everything was fairly yeah, untouched. So, like, I don't know. There's too many questions. There is, and obviously there's a lot lot more information out there about it. We just couldn't fit it into yeah, one episode. But, I think yeah, the most important. And we'll, we'll give you some, some jumping off points uh with links and stuff if you want to go on like serious yeah. deep dives as well um yeah i mean the Istar woman's case is technically reopened mm -hmm. since they did this isotopic analysis in 2017 mm -hmm. um the bbc have done an investigative series mm -hmm. on it so there is there is more coming out about it and i think we will find out who she was yeah. eventually I don't know if we'll, or don't really think we'll find out who Jennifer Fairgate was. Yeah, not anytime soon, probably. So that was a lot of information, a lot of supposition and theories and question marks, but uh, those are the cases and the stories of the Istal woman and Jennifer Fairgate, uh, who are still nameless in Norway. At one point, I thought that was a great title, and then I was like, that is really crass and horrible, so I go back and forth well, on it. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I kind of want to title the episode Itchy Spies, but... <laughs> go for it. I think that's amazing. Okay, I'll do it. I'll write it down. <laughs> Itchy Spies. Done. Um, <laughs> so, with that... Thank you all for listening. Um, let us know what you think on social media. Like, we want to hear your theories. What sort of, like, Wikipedia rabbit holes have you fallen down because of this? Because I'm about to. Like, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of the afternoon, I think. Yeah. We are on Instagram, uh, at Square Mile of Murder. We are on Facebook. Uh, I believe if you search Square square mile pod there and we also have a facebook group that you can join we will approve you the uh uh requirements to join it's a private group they're not high they're not tricky there's no trick questions so 
if you'd like to join. It's literally don't. It's be literally a dick. like, do you agree to not be rude to people? Yes, great, you're in. Um, so go check us out there. Um, and you know, Twitter is a thing that sometimes we remember we're a part of, and sometimes we don't. But uh, you can find us there, and if people talk to us on there, we might use it more. So if you want to do that, um, we're at Square Mile Pod on Twitter as well. Uh, and if if you like what you hear, if you're maybe uh, a newer listener, we would very much appreciate it if you could uh, give us a rating and a review, uh, especially on uh, Apple Podcasts, but uh, on your podcast listening platform of choice, um, because it really helps us get in front of more listeners. And, uh, and hey, if you want to subscribe while you're at it, that would be awesome as well, because that'd be cool. We'd like that. We'd be our best friend if you did that. <laughs> and if you want to go one step further, you could join our Patreon. Yes. Uh, pledges start from just £1 a month. You can now pay in your local currency. You don't have mm-hmm. to sit with a little currency calculator working it out. Yes. You can get extra merch. You can get bonus episodes depending on your level of pledge. And all of the money goes back into the show and helping us run it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we love it very much. Very yes. thankful to our patrons, and yes. we do have a new patron to thank. So Yay. thank you to Chris L. Yay, welcome. Thank you so much. You're super cool. Your hair looks great today. We will see you next week. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Thanks Bye-bye. so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.